So this has nothing to do with my sermon. But uh, we, we always joke at, at, at Thanksgiving when, when we have all of our, when, when it's usually it's a bigger crowd, I always like to know when we sit down and eat a meal, there's two kinds of people in the world when it comes to eating, especially special meals. You with me? There are those that eat all of one thing, one at a time, they move on to the next thing, then the next thing. And then there are the people who are right, like me, who we eat a little bit of everything and, 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 and then, because we're, and, and we're whittling down every portion of everything we get, and then at the end, you're making a decision about what's the last bite you want, right? Are you with me? So how, who are my, I eat all of everything, and then I move to the next thing until it's all gone. Who are those people? Yeah, come on, see, you're out there. You might not even realize that you did this. You were like, I thought everybody ate food like this, right? Who are the people like me that eat a little bit of everything and so you've whittled it down to one bite of every portion at the end? Yeah, I know. See? What, what, what was your favorite last bite of Thanksgiving? Favorite last bite. Anybody? Stuffing. With or without gravy? Yes. Somebody else. Favorite last bite? Anybody over here? Corn pudding? Yes. Turkey, white or dark? You like the dark meat or the white meat? Oh, oh, white meat with gravy. All right, Jennifer. Sweet potato casserole. Praise the name, right? Oh, so good. Anybody in the middle? Favorite last, favorite, favorite last bite? Stan, favorite last bite at Thanksgiving? Pumpkin pie. I was waiting for the dessert people to stand up, right? Everybody's giving the favorite last bite? Missy? Yes, yes. You did the combo bite. Preach. Oh, stop it. You're making my mouth water. Yes, the combo bite. You work it all on. Anybody else? I like the cranberry sauce out of the can. So it's, it's, it kind of shakes if somebody shakes the table, right? Anybody else? Yes, thank you. That's my combo bite. A little, don't say gross, honey. Yeah, don't, no, no, no. That's my combo bite. A, li, a little bit of that, that cranberry gelatinous wonder with a little bit of turkey, a little bit of stuffing, and a little bit of gravy. Oh, I'm just saying. Next year. So good. I joke a little bit because that idea of, of us having rhythms or, or favorites or preferences you, 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 you can imagine what it would be like if you sat down for thanks, your thanks, Thanksgiving meal and, and, and if you're the person that eats the, all of this, then all of this and, and works your way around. If somebody said, now I want you to do it differently this time. I want you to eat a little bit of everything until you've worked it down. Or if you're the other and then the opposite, right? How, how that would feel. Or, or if somebody's the things that you really don't like said, I want you to put these on your plate and give these preferential treatment, it, right, it, would, it would feel wrong. It would feel backwards. It would feel unnatural. But th- this is part of what Jesus does in our lives. He, he comes in and he rearranges things. He, he comes in and he makes changes sometimes that we don't welcome. We've been talking about, I've been showing these pictures in this little mini series last 
night as tonight's our last night, but we have this picture of Jesus being this grandmother that's always comforting our inner child, always saying yes when we want one more cookie, right? Or just no matter even if we are wrong, like this is the sense I get here is that little boy, right? He 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 did something he wasn't supposed to, but his grandmother's saying it's okay, right? Just constant affirmation. But but this picture, I know I tricked you, right? I went to the screen and and, and then I, I stayed on. The, this picture I've been showing every week, because this is a lot of who Jesus is in our lives. He, he shows up with a construction helmet, goggles, and a sledgehammer, breaking down walls, building things that maybe we would not otherwise choose to build ourselves. He is an agent, agent of change, that is disruptive so many times in our lives. In this series, I've talked about three things because I have found that people are ill-prepared for how disruptive Jesus is in our lives. And so I, so I was putting this series together that I felt like God wanted me to share. I felt like it was supposed to be personal. I felt like God wanted me to pick three things that were just deeply disruptive for me, things that completely disoriented me, changed the rhythm of my life. If you, if you want to think about life being a dance, you have a certain cadence, you have a certain rhythm that you've established. So, sometimes Jesus comes in, we've got to let him take the lead. And he wants to establish a new rhythm. Sabbath was like that for me. I was used to being in control of my time, doing what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it. And at some point when I began to realize this practice of a weekly Sabbath is part of God's plan and design for my life, it was disruptive. Even though it was good, it was disruptive. Last week we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was disruptive in my life. I was used to being the one who had the final say in my heart on the inside at the boardroom of decision-making in my heart for the Holy Spirit to become that one who has the final say. It was disruptive. It was disruptive. Tonight, I want to talk about tithing. It was disruptive in my life. I was used to having access and discretion over all of my material possessions, but then when I began to realize that God had a plan for my finances and that plan involved me giving a portion of my finances away that was more than what I would prefer and more than what I would, it was disruptive. But yet these moments of, and that, right, this is just three. There are many, but this disruption established a new rhythm and a new cadence and a new pattern in my life, and I was the better for it. What you begin to realize when you yield yourself to the disruptive work of Christ, he's actually building a better life than the one that you had before, a better life. It feels like a construction zone, right? But there's a reveal at the end. His plan for us is always better I want to start tonight by sharing this brief video. We've shared it before, but we thought we would reach back for it that Brian and Christina Mary, who are here tonight, uh, reached out to us some time ago and said, hey, we want to tell our story about what God has done in our lives since we've embraced this principle of tithing. So we're going to roll this video. I want you to watch it with me. Greetings, City Life family. I am Brian, and this is my wife, Christina. We are the Marys. We've been with City Life for four years and we wanted to share with you our financial testimony. Over the years, we had accumulated a lot of debt and it felt like there was no way of turning things around. After coming to City Life, we learned about the importance of faithfully tithing. With so much debt, we were nervous about taking those first steps towards giving, but we were so glad we did. And that's when God began to turn our lives around. 
I remember when it was time to pay the bills and just praying to God, I don't want to live like this forever. We were always so stressed out about money and just barely getting by. Our hearts began to feel more ministered to about our giving and we felt a strong conviction to increase our tithings. We weren't able to start out at 10%, but we started where we could. And over some time, I remember feeling God calling us to give more and more. And at one point, we were so stretched thin that I thought to myself, how is this even possible? The amount of money that we were giving didn't seem to align with the amount coming in. We didn't question it and just continued with our givings. Now looking back, I can see that it was God moving in and through our finances. Next came our miracle. We began receiving one financial blessing after another, and then they just kept coming in. I remember thinking that one of them had to be a mistake, but no, it was another blessing from God. A year and a half later, we were not only debt-free, but for the first time ever, we actually had a savings. We were so far in debt that it would have taken us a lifetime to pay everything off on our own. But that was just the thing. God didn't want us to do it on our own. For us, we had to learn that when it came to our finances, it's God first, then everything else. We share our story because if you're stressed out about living paycheck to paycheck or maybe worrying about insufficient funds, don't be. Let me encourage you today that through our financial testimony that God is faithful and you can fully trust Him with your finances. I know while going through financial hardship is tough and can be difficult to see God moving, but I'm telling you that you can believe He is moving. He is bigger than any money issue and still working miracles when it comes to our finances. Come on. How about saying thank you to them for sharing that? So good. So good. Hey, I've got six questions I'm going to work through tonight. I don't know if I'm going to get through all of them, but the notes are always online. You can always download them from our website. May I'm going to, I'm going to jump to the, the very first one that says the portion I, I, these six questions that people often have when it comes to this idea of tithing. One is, 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 does the Bible actually speak to a specific portion, and is that portion part of the New Testament and, and not just the Old Testament? We're going to talk about that. We're, we're going to talk about the idea, is there a consequence? Sometimes people have this question, well, what if I don't do it? it, it, it does the Bible talk about a consequence? Is there a, a, a negative consequence if I, if I don't? Is there a positive consequence if I do? Then we're going to talk about priority. Does, does the Bible talk about a priority, meaning that what, what's supposed to go first? And Brian and Christine have already touched on some of these. Then we, the place. Does the Bible have an idea about where, where we're supposed to give that tithe? So if you're, if you're buying into the idea of a tithe, if you're buying into the idea of a, of, of a portion and a priority and, and, a, and a consequence, then you, you, at some point you get to this place of where, where am I going to make this gift? Where am I going to make this gift? The Bible has something to say about that. Does the Bible have something to say about giving beyond tithe? The answer is yes to that, and I'm going to I'm going to give you those again for if we have time. And then the last one is trust. Is 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 where does trust come into play? Because because what you're going to find if you begin to live your life out according to a a biblical way of life for for finances, you're going to find that sometimes it's not always about math. So sometimes faith asks you to step beyond math. 
So the first one is this. Where, where does this idea of portion come comes from? Now, as you read throughout the Old Testament, you see this idea of a tithe or or, or tenth. I'll define a tenth. I'll define that for you in in just a minute. But in the New Testament, we see that Jesus affirms the practice of tithing. Here in Matthew twenty three twenty three, he says, "What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law." And you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So, so Jesus is saying, don't, don't find yourself with a false choice that God doesn't give you. It's not about one or the other so many times in Christianity. It's about both and. We're supposed to live a life of virtue. The character of Christ is supposed to be forming in us, but that doesn't have to be at the expense of some specific instructions that God has for us in regards to our finances. So here we see Jesus talking specifically about this idea of a tenth part. A tithe literally means a tenth. There is a, a practice that you see even before the Mosaic Law, as you study the Old Testament, this idea of, of giving a tenth, of giving a tenth of what, of what you have. And as we study Scripture, especially when we're asking the question, what, what goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Right? Because we know some things are left behind. We don't do animal sacrifices anymore. Even though they, are, they were essential to the worship of God in the Old Testament, they're not part of the new covenant. They're not part of this new life as a devoted follower of Christ. There are many things in the Old Testament that don't pass from the old to the new. And then what we find is there are some things in the Old Testament, they move forward into the new covenant, into this new life with Christ just as prominently as they were in the old. The Ten Commandments are an example of that. We talked about that with the Sabbath. Those ten are timeless. Those ten were just as are just as important now as they were then. So sometimes some things get left behind, some things move forward just as they were, and then some things Jesus raises the standard. As you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, if you've never read that, you will see that Jesus goes to this phrase, you have heard it said that, but then he gives a new standard. He, he talks about adultery. He talks about this idea of stepping outside the boundaries of your marriage. And then he goes as far to say, he said, That's, that was the old standard. The new standard is, is if you even lust in your heart and your imagination that you, you've committed a sin. He raised the standard. Why, why do I say that? Because if you look at the principle of tithing, I feel like you've got to choose one of those three things. It's either something that's supposed to be completely left behind, but I don't think you can read the New Testament in good conscience and come to that conclusion. You really only have two others. It's supposed to continue as it was, or, or it means that that's just the beginning and there's a new standard of generosity that even now Jesus would expect of us. A tenth part, I believe, and we practice as a family, that that means a tenth of our gross annual income. I've been doing that ever since I was a devoted follower of Christ, even before I was in vocational ministry in a church much like this one that taught about this biblical principle. It's been a foundation in my life and of my stewardship. It has been for Vanessa for her whole life. We've raised our children with this idea and this belief and understanding of what it means to give a tenth of what you have. 
It's interesting that God does it based on a percentage, and I think he does that because it evens the playing field. Whether you have much or whether you have little, a tenth can still be applied. It evens the playing field. That, that, that tithing as a practice and a principle is not just supposed to be the benefit of people of means. This idea of a, of a tithe means that you can give a tenth of a very little and you can give a tenth of a whole lot and it evens the playing field for all people no matter what your place of wealth, no matter what your standard of living is, everybody has the benefit of practicing the principle of the tithe. Number two, is there a consequence? I believe that there is. We read about this in Malachi. It's in the third chapter. It says, ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? Should people cheat God Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When do we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and the offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord, if you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open up the windows of heaven for you, and I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. It is the only time in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the only time that God says, put me to a test. In fact, in the rest of the Bible, it says, don't test God. And yet here, God says, oh, if, if you want to test me, test me in this one thing. I believe here the Bible sets something in, 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 into, into the realm of understanding that's important for us, that, that when we walk in the principle of tithing, there is favor that comes to those who walk in that practice. And, and then it's a strong word. Now, we don't use this terminology of cursing or what because of modern film and Harry Potter and everything else, right, that's not real, that, that we have this, this broken understanding of what blessing and cursing is. But, but really, what it comes down to is that blessing means that you have supernatural favor working in your favor. Curse means that there is, there is supernatural resistance working against you, right? And, and here in Malachi, God is saying to us, you, you have the ability to posture yourself with your material possessions in a stream where there is supernatural favor working on your behalf. And it's up to us which stream we're going to be in. Are we going to be in the flow of God's favor or are we going to be swimming upstream against the current? That's what Malachi is talking about here when he talks about blessing and cursing. This is a quote from a a book by Robert Morris called The Blessed Life. I don't agree with everything that's in the book, but some things I do, and this is one that I like. He talks about the principle of first fruits is, a very, is very, very powerful. He says, I've heard it said that any first thing given is never lost, and any first thing that is not given is always lost. In other words, what we give to God, we don't lose because God redeems it for us. But what we withhold from him, we will lose. Jesus echoed this principle when he said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will find it. That's in Matthew 16, 25. I have made this statement in this church ever since we came here in 2007. 90% of what you have with God's favor is always more than 100% without God's favor. Right? So, sometimes 
the kingdom of God and the, and the principles in this book go against the ideas of math. I'm just telling you, 90% with God's favor will always ultimately be more, go further, possess more value than 100% of what you have without God's favor, without God's favor. There is a consequence both for and against. Malachi was written, he is the last prophetic voice in the world before John the Baptist comes onto the scene. We talk about this as, 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 as chronological context. The chronology of the Bible is instructive. God is about ready to be quiet prophetically for 400 years. For 400 years. John the Baptist breaks that prophetic silence to usher in the coming of Christ. It matters the things that he chose to say. There is a reason, just like with the Sabbath, there's a reason why he made it part of the Ten Commandments, to give it emphasis. There is a reason he talks about the impact of the tithe right before his 400 years of prophetic silence because he wanted to make sure that we got it right. The next one is this, this idea of priority. How does priority come into play when we're talking about this principle of a tithe? 1 Corinthians 16.1 says, Now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches of Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money that you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying here, if you don't make it a priority and make it part of your financial plan, make it part of your budget. If you just say to yourself, well, I'll just give it in the end, you and I both know that in the end it won't be there because we will find a way to spend it on something else. There should be an order to our finances. There should be a plan with our finances. I believe that the money that we have decisioned in our heart to give we should give that priority like we do other important aspects of our finances. It should be something that is not negotiated at the end after we've done it all. It should be something on the front end. And then if there is a question of lack, then we should be negotiating standard of living, not practicing principles of biblical stewardship and generosity. In Proverbs 3, 9 through 10, reads this way, Honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the best part of everything you produce, then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow, come on, with good wine. Over and over and over and over, all throughout Scripture, when it talks about generosity, when it talks about sacrificial giving, it speaks it in the same breath as blessing. Not, not that blessing is supposed to be our motivation, but God wants us to understand again what it means to posture and position our lives into the current and the flow of his favor as opposed to swimming upstream. There is a priority that we are supposed to bring. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added unto you. Part of Christianity is understanding that our lives are supposed to be ordered in certain ways. So some things are supposed to come before other things. Some things are supposed to come before other things. And, the, and with the principle of the tithe, as we read in Scripture, there is a priority that is attached to it. Our gift does not rise to the standard of the tithe, 
a biblical tithe until the sentiment of the heart from which it comes crosses the threshold of sacrifice and gladness. Let me read that again. Our gift does not rise to the standard of the tithe until the sentiment of the heart from which it comes crosses the threshold of sacrifice and gladness. If, if, if you give it reluctantly, then all of the blessing and the favor that comes with the tithe, even if you've met it by the standard of the expectation, if it doesn't come from the right kind of heart, I think God says, that's not being in the flow of what I'm asking you to do. He, he doesn't just want us to meet the standard. He, he, he wants it to come from a heart of gladness. Making it a priority always comes from a heart that's excited to step into what God has for us. What about a place? Does the Bible give any indication of where that tithe is, is supposed to go and how we're supposed to give it? Let me read to you out of Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 6 through 14. All right, let's, we're going to skip that for the sake of time. Let's do this. We're going to get through all six of them. When you read in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and many other places in the Old Testament, you, you find that there is a list that is given to us of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you're reading in the Old Testament prior to them coming into the promised land where the promised land is being divided up and each tribe of the 12 are given a portion of the land, if, if you're reading prior to that, early enough in the story, you will find that Joseph is, is one of the sons and also Levi is one of the sons. But then when you get to the part of the story where the land is being divided up, you do not find Joseph's name. You also do not find Levi's name. If you were a map person like me, when back when we had paper Bibles and there were things in the back, I would like to go to the maps and look at the maps and read the maps and all of the maps. They would be color-coded, the, the promised land, and, and, and there would be the tribe of Dan and, 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 and Manasseh and Judah, and every son was a tribe unto themselves, and they were a portion apart. But Levi never had a demarcation of land given to them, and neither did Joseph. Now, we know that Joseph's land was given to his two sons. And so they came in and became part of the inheritance. And then Levi is never included because the Levites are the priests of Israel. All of this, I believe, is instructive for us. As, as we're looking at how God had a plan for the nation of Israel, he was prophetically speaking, I believe, for how the church that Jesus said he was going to come and build is supposed to function. The, the reason why Levi, the son, and his descendants, the Levites, did not have an inheritance of land. Is that It says that their inheritance was the Lord and the work of the ministry that had been entrusted to them. And, 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 and the Levites were not given a portion of land because they lived all throughout the promised land. And, and every tribe was responsible for giving a portion of their land to them. And, and then the way that the Levites were sustained is that through this principle of tithes and offerings and feasts and their families were provided for. Now, I'm a firm believer that God was using that to prophetically speak to one day when he would come and build the church, that no matter what nation it is, no matter what country that you're in, where the Christian church is present, that that, that nation has a need for people who 
their vocation is given to caring for the spiritual needs of that community. And then that community, by giving to the local church, makes it possible for those people's financial needs to be met so they can give their time and attention to the work of the ministry. Pastoral ministry really boils down to four things, guiding, sustaining, and healing, and reconciling. That, that work takes time. That work takes time. We, we, we are a firm believer, and we're thankful for this church that our pastoral staff has always been able to be in a place of working full-time for the church so that you have access to us whenever there is a need. And whenever I look into the Old Testament and I see that map, it's a reminder to me that God always had a plan for there to be ministers in society. He always had a plan for there to be people who were provided for provided for, so that the spiritual needs of the community could be met. It was understood that a, the nation of Israel, Israel would collectively support the work of the ministry as well as those tasked with doing that ministry. At the inception of the church in Acts, my Bible reading plan has me in Acts right now. It's, it's so fascinating. That's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And, 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 we, and we find a continuation of the commitment of the collective financial support of the ministry of their home church. Our baseline giving should start with the church we call home and then grow from there. See, as you study the Old Testament and then as you dive into the book of Acts, you find this incredible connection. It was always part of God's plan. And then what started in Acts continues on even today in churches all around the world. For me personally, we've always practiced it as a family, our tithe we give to the church that we call home. We want that church that we call home to have people who are able to give their time and attention to minister to the spiritual needs of the community that we are in. All right, two more. I think we're going to make it. Offerings. Does the Bible talk about more than a tithe? Yes, it does. Tithing is one specific part of, of what it means to practice stewardship and generosity as a devoted follower of Christ. But as you look into the Bible, you find that there are these four other distinct moments and distinct practices that God asks us to step into. This is one of the reasons why it's important to have a budget. This is one of the reasons why it's important to have a financial plan. Whether you have much or whether you have little, you should have a plan that you're following so that there is money that you have that you have access to at times and seasons to not just tithe consistently, but in moments of, of, of spontaneous giving where the Holy Spirit prompts your heart that you can step into these. One is giving to the poor. Another is moments of hospitality. Another is special projects sometimes that you have an opportunity to be invited into. And then the last one is missions, just being able to support missionaries and works around the world or even in our own city that is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we like to say here for the Lord's Prayer when it says give us our daily bread that part of that prayer about giving us our daily bread, he doesn't expect us to eat the whole loaf. I've been using that saying, right? There's, there's a certain number of slices that he, he is a portion for our own consumption, but then he gives us stewardship and ownership over the rest of it. And some of that is because he wants to use us to give it away. He wants to use us to give it to others. Giving for the poor, moments of hospitality, 
special projects, giving to missions. Scripture is clear that 10% of our gross earnings is the starting point of our personal stewardship giving strategy. Given to the church we call home, supplemented by gifts to the poor, hospitality, special projects, and missions. The last one is this, is trust. Because sometimes the math is not going to work. I love that Brian and Christina talked about that in their story. Sometimes the math doesn't add up. We're not talking about being foolish. There's a difference between faith and foolishness. There's a difference between faith and foolishness. But sometimes faith requires us to trust God and to take him at his word. It's interesting here in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend in, or, or, do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will and all that you do, and he will show you which path to take. We, we read from Proverbs 3 earlier tonight, didn't we? We picked up in verse 9 that talks about honoring God with our first fruits and this idea of giving. As you back up, as you back up in chapter 3, here Solomon is talking about this idea of we have to trust in the Lord. You cannot walk in this principle of trusting God with your first fruits until you trust that he's going to take care of his own. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. Sometimes the math is not going to work. In 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7, we have this incredible story where a family reached out to Elisha, the prophet. He was the successor of Elijah. And they had debt and they didn't have what they needed to pay that debt. Their, their family was in financial ruin, and, and Elisha told them, he said, I want you to, to go and, and gather pots, as many pots as you could find. And then at some point, they stopped gathering pots. They, at some point, they decided that this is all the pots that we could ever possibly need. Because what Elisha said to do was take whatever little bit of olive oil you had, it was probably a very small container, and said, I want you to start pouring it into the pots. And then once one pot is full, then I want you to go to the next one and the next one and the next one. It's an incredible story. For, in for 2 Kings chapter 4, if you've never read it, you should. Can you, can you imagine walking around that house with this little tiny container and pouring up this big vat, this big pot, one after another, after another, after another? And at some point, they get to the place where every pot they had gathered was completely full. I still think when they filled that last one, they all had the same thought. We should have gotten more pots. Because the idea was that God was going to fill every pot that they gathered. I love that story in the Bible because I think this is part of the Christian journey. I think this is part of the Christian experience. It doesn't make sense what Elisha asked them to do. It doesn't make sense what, what, he, what, what he laid out for them, the, the plan that he gave to them. So, sometimes the path, the disruptive path that Jesus puts us on is going to go against human reason. But the question is, do we trust him? Do we trust that he can do what he says he's going to do? When we put him to the test, do we believe? Do we believe that he will be faithful? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I want to ask you these four questions tonight. Those other six are the questions that over all these years of pastoral ministry that I have found that people tend to dig around in. So I just wanted to kind of give them to you tonight and some of my answers to them. But now I, I want to give you 
four, four questions. Four questions that, that you can begin to look at and reflect on when you're asking yourself, is, is my life in alignment with the, with the scriptures when it comes to finances? The first one is this, is does my giving match my beliefs? This is so important. If you believe in the biblical principle of tithing, do you tithe? Right? At some point, there has to be an honest reflection of where is my life in relation to what I profess to believe? For what I profess to believe. If you don't believe that tithing is for today, then I would argue you're only left, again, as we've already covered this ground, it means that you're in the category of more. And there should be a greater outflow than just the 10%. Are my finances organized in a disciplined budget? You, you, you will never walk in the fullness of the discipline of the stewardship that God expects us unless you have a plan. Unless you have a plan. Am I motivated to build my home church for others? Come on. Not, 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 not just for you. Not, not just for what you're going to get out of it. Are, are you willing to practice this principle of the tithe in the church that you call home? Not just for you, but so that the spiritual needs of the people that are sitting around you and that are watching online can be met. Are you willing to do it not just for you and your family, but are you willing to do it for others? Are you willing to give for the person that's watching online that can't be here? Are you willing to give for the child that's in the nursery that you don't know? Are you willing to give for the stranger that's going to be in from out of town and hear about the gospel and maybe for the first time and go back to where they're from and maybe you're never going to meet them until you get to heaven? Are you willing to do it for someone else? Not just for yourself. And the last one is this. I was talking to Penny Jordan, one of our elders before church. She was just telling me about a story that just happened to them. Do I have money miracle stories? Do I have money miracle stories? If you don't have stories, like what the Marys were talking about, we've got all kinds of things that even it happen in our lives every year. Money miracles, things that don't add up where the math doesn't count. Times where God says give and we're like, I don't know where that's going to come from, but we're going to figure it out. And then a month later, it comes back around to us. We, we, we don't give it for what we get out of it. But the miracles that God does in our lives, I think he does to affirm the practice, to let us know that we're on the right track. If, if you can't think of the last time you had a money miracle happening in your life, my suggestion to you, it might be that something is out of alignment with your life when it comes to your finances. I think this idea of money miracles is, it doesn't have to be a miracle that a book is supposed to be written about. It just means that it just doesn't make sense. The math doesn't add up. I hope as you reflect on this message and these things that we've talked about tonight, that you're willing to take those four questions and use them a little bit like a spotlight and shine them onto your life. Stand with me. Father, we know that there is a massive difference between the Bible being a book of suggested wisdom and a book of authority with the final say. A, 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 a book of suggested wisdom versus a, a book of authority with the final say. 
Help us, God, to be a people, children born into your family, yielding to the Holy Spirit that's sitting at the seat of honor at the boardroom of our heart, giving direction to our will on many things, but most certainly our finances. May it be that we would be known as the people of God, not just because of what we say, not just because of where we go, not not just because of the character of who we are, but God, because of the way we give, because of the way we give. Let it be, Lord, that one of the ways that Jesus is easy to find in our city, God, is through our pocket. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.